Hello, welcome to the New Stack Makers, a podcast where we talk about at scale application development, deployment, and management. Prisma Cloud is a comprehensive cloud native security platform with the industry's broadest security and compliance coverage for applications, data, and the entire cloud native technology stack throughout the development lifecycle and across multi and hybrid cloud environments. Hey, welcome to another episode of the New Stack Makers. And today we are talking about Kubernetes security, security above and beyond what Kubernetes has natively. And my guest is Robert Haynes of Palo Alto Networks. Robert is a cloud security evangelist at Palo Alto Networks. Nice to have you join us today, Robert. Thanks for having me, Alex. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. So we just wrote this ebook on Kubernetes and Palo Alto Networks is participating in as a sponsor. And one of the things that's interesting about this ebook in revising it, we found that the plumbing is basically there for Kubernetes. Some people would argue how good the plumbing is, but that's inevitable. I think once the plumbing is done anywhere, then you start thinking, well, what's the street going to look like? You know, what's the road? What are the, you know, what are the buildings going to look like? You know, how is this, how is this going to fit in with the architectures of the cityscape? And I think it's similar, you know, to how people are building on top of Kubernetes and they have to think about these issues. And one of those issues is security. You know, Kubernetes is not built to have every security feature. And so now people, as they're building, they have to think about these things. And a lot of people have had to learn the hard way. Maybe not a lot of people, but some people have. And, they've, and, and, and I bet as a, as a security professional, you find that those are the real learning lessons we have. Yeah, I mean, I think that the hard way is kind of everyone. So whether or not you're the victim of a compromise or whatever that might be, or you're the one that's got to work out how to do the upgrade over, you know, with, with the minimum amount of downtime because you need a new version out really fast. Everyone... Everyone suffers from these things. So, I mean, I think that's that's true of, of all platforms as they as they evolve and, and merge, especially something like Kubernetes, which has grown fairly fast and has now become become the kind of like almost the de facto standard for for any kind of container environment. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I think we, you know, we've learned a lot over the over the sort of relatively short few years about Kubernetes or where the security issues are. But I think, you know, I think I have this, this theory that if you could find a, a security professional and you could, you could like wipe their memory with one of those kind of uh, pens from uh, Men in Black and they had no knowledge of, of Kubernetes and they'd never heard of it. And then you explained briefly to them the, the architecture and how it worked. They could pretty much predict where the security vulnerabilities were going to be and what the path of attack would be. They might not get it perfectly, but I think, you know, in itself, if you assess Kubernetes, how it works, what it's designed for, the kind of the, the two or three key ways that people are going to try and abuse it are, are fairly obvious. And I think that was reflected as we as we saw the early kind of the, the early critical CVEs come in. Yeah, and I want to ask you about those earlier security breaches and what they taught you, you know, and then maybe getting into how they've changed a little bit as uh, time has gone on and Kubernetes become more popular. So I think, um, you know, the first critical CVE was, I think, 2018. Predictably, it was against the API service, the, the details of which are, are kind of like not super relevant for this. But I think what, what it taught us is something we, we already knew, that Kubernetes is software. And, and all software 
has vulnerabilities. And the the thing I think we can take from the from the kind of the the, the early things was actually uh, was actually quite encouraging. So yeah, okay, there was a problem, but it wasn't, and it was an open source project that lots of people were using and had a critical security vulnerability. And what was the response going to be like? And actually, the response was pretty good. I think the the kind of maintainers of Kubernetes can be fairly satisfied that they they did a decent job of finding fixing and then communicating that that problem out there. So I think in many ways, although no one wants a critical CVE on their platform that's running lots of stuff, the fact that the, the way that it was handled was pretty good, not perfect. And I think the openness of that, and you can go back and read the, the post-mortem that they did on it, and it, you should, because it's insightful. Um, but I think that we, the thing we learned from the early compromise is that, yes, actually, we can have an open source project. That's critical to a lot of people's um, compute environments, and that the when vulnerabilities come along, they will be handled okay. And as I say, I think the, um, the places we're going to find vulnerabilities and the the mechanisms of attack and the mechanisms of compromise aren't fundamentally any different from any other platform. You know, you think Kubernetes exposes nearly all of its functionality via var API. You know, you go into the API server, the API server does, um, talks to whatever subcomponent scheduling that needs. And therefore it's a critical and obvious part of the part of the infrastructure that's potentially open to to attack you know kubernetes was built so that developers could run things sort of quickly and on a you know a, a platform they didn't have to worry about the underlying architecture so that kind of implies that people have to be able to get access to the the thing to better tell it to do stuff make api calls launch pods so there's no way of getting away from not having a, a you know a fairly comprehensive control plane um, and therefore that's always going to be a point you need to kind of critically protect you know, be that the, the kind of the back-end services like EC, ETCD or the actual API itself. So I think, you know, we maybe as security professionals learn a bit. I think the operators of Kubernetes, um, which had often been done in a different bubble, in a different um, team away from maybe enterprise IT, which was still kind of, you know, dealing with monolithic apps, possibly still hosted in data centers with quite strict IT processes with like, you know, batch releases and, and like, you know, waterfall deployments. I think the maybe at the point when we started seeing some critical vulnerabilities, some of those security practices became more relevant to people operating Kubernetes environments. I'd love to get into the, the people part of the equation too. And that last one you made is important about the ops teams and how they needed to adapt. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the, nearly every vulnerability, there are two or three things you need to think about. It's okay. One is, um, you know, if it's a vulnerability that retwi- requires a fairly esoteric set of circumstances to be exploitable, I mean, in those, uh, that, that circumstance. Now, the nice thing with most Kubernetes in production environments is that, you know, they're, the, the components running inside of that have been deployed using kind of infrastructure as code and the Kubernetes system itself is deployed and managed using, often using like, you know, hopefully using like YAML and done as not just as command lines, but as, you know, QTL, QTL apply with a file. So it should be relatively easy to build some rules to find out if your configuration matches the kind of vulnerable circumstances. So I think, you know, there's an operational piece about how do we do kind of uh, security posture management? How do we do vulnerability management that that everyone suddenly need to think about? Because, you know, this was just going to be the first and it's probably never going to stop. So if there are specific combinations of settings, um, configuration and versions that make you vulnerable, you need to be able to identify if that's you really quickly. 
So the first thing is finding if you're vulnerable. Then, you know, a, a vulnerability, uh, the remediation usually has, there's usually two things you can do. One is you can upgrade and the other is you can change your configuration if you have a vulnerable one, you know. And sometimes those vulnerable configurations are things you should never have been doing anyway, so that could be good. But then you have to have operational processes for making those changes, not just to kind of like the, the running container environment, which is fairly dynamic anyway, but changing your Kubernetes environment, which is, you know, probably fairly difficult. Um, and often, you know, often maybe disruptive depending on what you need to do. So I think that sort of urgent upgrade would have been a fairly new experience for a lot of early Kubernetes environments, not so much for, you know, traditional IT where we have to work out a patch, you know, 5,000 running Apache versions or whatever, when the struts comes out or, you know, all those things. So I think that sort of, um, that remediation, those capabilities may be something that people need to develop. Now, this is, I speak in generalities. There are loads of really, you know, on it Kubernetes operators who had pre-thought about what was going to happen when a big bug came out and, and were able to adapt really quickly. But, you know, there's a lot of people that are just trying to get going. There are a lot of people that are, you know, trying to move as fast as they can. And, and some of these operational principles and some of the kind of like the some of the negative attributes to a heavily maintained, heavily sort of managed IT environment, the the slow pace, you know, the change for control boards, um, the change review system, you know, the the process driven environments are kind of the antithesis sometimes of the of the DevOps move fast and rely on automation kind of thing. So I think there was a ton of learning that probably went on there. Um, and I think those are, those events are probably the kind of the beginning of the DevSecOps kind of movement. DevSecOps is a maybe a term that's that's not without any kind of controversy. I've heard great arguments for DevSecOps isn't a thing because if you're doing DevOps properly, you're doing security. It's an irrelevant term. But at the same time, when we go and look in the real world and we look at the kind of the Unit 42 threat reports of how many containers are running with insecure defaults, um, how many things aren't encrypted, then the reality is we kind of need a, a more of a security process in there. So, um, you know, I think there had to be a coming together of, or there, there needed to be a coming together of that security mindset, the security skill set, and the operational and at scale. Uh, processes that, that are involved in Kubernetes. And I don't think we've made it there yet, to be honest. Where were you at the time when DevSecOps really emerged when you started to see this heavyweight approach versus DevOps? My previous life involved dealing with traditional uh, web application firewalls. You know, I, I spent a lot of time talking about protocolizing the the joys of, of, a, of a web application firewall, which is a fine and wondrous piece of technology but is often one of the more complicated things that any IT organization has to manage as a single device. You know, web application files are often quite... It, you have a choice with web application files at the moment, um, which every manufacturer is trying to fix. You can either have a really complicated one that's relatively hard to manage, has thousands of settings, but is actually pretty good, or you can have a really, really easy one that's like five checkboxes that maybe doesn't catch everything. And they're not... They're often managed by a, a different team. They're disconnected. And, and one of the things we spent a lot of time trying to do was connect the, the kind of the web application firewall into the, the developer DevOps processes. So I was kind of trying to help 
developers who are trying to develop in a, in a container environment, trying to move really fast, trying to spin up new services, spin down new services. I was trying to help at that intersection between the more traditionally managed IT security stack. And so I saw a lot of the friction there. Um, I saw a lot of people struggling on both sides of the camp. I saw frustrated, frustrated development teams, frustrated product owner teams who wanted to get things out the door, but you know had to have configuration changes. Just, just quickly, how how did you you know when you see, you see you saw the a lot of friction, you saw that frustration. Can you describe that frustration, that friction that you saw? So I think the worst cases were were just a, a complete lack of communication. I would talk to a traditional IT network security team and ask them what was going on with the developers or the development team, and they would have no idea. And I would say, well, what happens when you go and talk to them? And they go, well, they won't, they won't have meetings with us, they won't talk to us. And I would look up, then try and get in touch you know, through, through whatever channels I could with a development team, and they would believe they were solving the problems that the, the network security team could solve, but using you know, the, the tool choice of, of their own. And so you'd have like these parallel processes, these parallel teams that just weren't really communicating very well. Actually, if you get to the point where there's, there was some friction and some discussion and some negotiation, you were a lot better than when there was just no communication at all. And it's hard because the, you know, in most organizations, the security team still feel they, they carry the responsibility for risk mitigation in an organization. Okay, they still, they're still like, you can, you know, they have a bunch of technical skills and, and knowledge, but really they're there to mitigate risk. And to find the balance between, you know, making something fast, interesting for customers, does its job and, and low risk. And I think when that conversation didn't happen, when it wasn't facilitated, when there was no way of having that conversation, that's when we saw um, the most amount of, uh, you know, I don't know, problems in terms of whether that really resulted in IT problems, but we certainly saw a massive disconnect between teams. Those were very difficult to solve and there's no communication between two whole teams. And some of that, some of that stems from how organizations decided to, it goes way back, you know, the genesis of some of that is how organizations decided to do cloud and, and how they did, how they built teams around, around, uh, you know, cloud migrations. You know, if you think about this, when we go back to sort of this dev of DevSecOps thing, this is at the same time when lots of mainstream organizations you know, we're, we're heavily beginning to move towards cloud environments. Because realistically, although you can do a DevOps environment without a cloud environment, there's a lot of, you know, intersection between the two. You need the, the flexibility of the underlying architecture to be able to, you know, move fast, spin things up, do continuous deployments. You know, if we, especially if we saw organizations that had really segregated their cloud teams away from their, away from their kind of traditional business operations, IT teams. And I think that that certainly didn't help any kind of interaction between security and, and development teams. And conversely, there are loads of organizations that, you know, kept a very tight, kept a very kind of cross-functional team environment, um, had those negotiations and, and have been able to kind of inject security into those teams. But it's certainly not as universal as it might be. When you're looking back at those changes and those disconnects and you saw the rise of DevSecOps through that, how do you think that is reflected in today's Kubernetes infrastructure and how it's evolving in terms of security? I mean, I think there's been a, there's been a clear recognition that we have now, you can go find you know, Kubernetes security best practices. You know that you need to, there's a lot more of that around. I, found, I dug out a, an early edition of a, 
uh, a Kubernetes pattern style book. I won't name the book itself. And I, I this was last night, and I, I went through the index and looked for security, and it turned up twice. And this whole book about Kubernetes deployment patterns, like the, the security aspects of, of deployments turn, turned up twice. So we've moved on a long, long way from there. There's tons of really great, you know, either conference talks or books or articles around, you know, 10 best practices to, to secure Kubernetes. So there's a knowledge piece that's come along. There's definitely an improvement in some of the Kubernetes infrastructure, things like, you know, the open policy agent type stuff that you can tie in security to network overlays um the idea you know that the, the core principles around you know separating out namespaces all this sort of great stuff we can do so a lot has been done at both the the kind of kubernetes level to to allow you to build secure deployments i mean the defaults are still not not super secure but you know the, the capability is now there the principles are there and the knowledge is out there of, of how to do it you know there's no you can't say, oh, I, I, I'd secure my Kubernetes environment, but I don't know how. I can't find the information because there's tons of it out there. And with that, I, I mean, I'm not saying we've seen, we've seen a drop off in Kubernetes kind of fundamental flaw type, type attacks because there's still lots of, of CVEs out there. But we've also seen the kind of, and this is probably also a, um, a factor of the number of people that are using this and how they're using it. But, you know, nearly all of the attacks have involved some other, some other, some other factors going on. You know, classically, someone's left a some kind of console, whether that's a Kubernetes console or a third-party software console, open to to the outside. So I think what we are seeing, although we see some better security capabilities within Kubernetes itself, we're definitely seeing an uptick in exploitation of configuration errors, exploitation of configuration errors of, of third-party services. We're seeing software supply chain attacks, leveraging the kind of the permissions and the, the kind of the, the role-based stuff that's there. You know, if I if I get a com- container compromised, what's going on with that? So I think the although the core Kubernetes itself is able to be secured better, there's still an awful lot of like best practice around how we, from the very start of building a container through running the container, through the third-party tools I'm using to, to manage and monitor my container, to how I, how I instrument and how I monitor Kubernetes and how I get alerts. So I think although I would absolutely say Kubernetes has made great strides in the fundamental security and the, you know, the, the security components there's a lot of work on top of that and around of those those attack environments that needs to or those those attack vectors that we still need to look at yeah that that's so present now with the dependencies that people have on third-party applications and we see solutions starting to emerge such as service mesh for instance being able to manage the that mesh of APIs really. And there's other ways that that can be, you know, that the issues can be mitigated. What are some of the leading ones for you? And there's also kind of the downside, I think, where this stuff is so new and there's that knowledge gap again. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, you have to take, and this is where, this is where the, this is where security teams can be a Kubernetes, either a development team or an operator team, whoever's running that, you know, the DevOps, whoever's looking after Kubernetes. That's where the, the security mindset can be your friend. That's where I think the, rather than focus on on process and mitigation, I think, as I said, you know, if you take a security mindset and you look at Kubernetes and you look at your entire stack that's running and relying on Kubernetes, security teams can bring tremendous value because they're pretty good at spotting 
the, the most obvious attack vectors. And if you think about that in, in Kubernetes, you know, mostly you're either going to try and make a, an outside attack on Kubernetes infrastructure, like, you know, try and get to the API server via um, some means, try and get to some console that's been exposed by, by, some, by you know, a misconfiguration, um, try and look at what third-party tools you might be running for security monitoring or scheduling and try and try and get to those. Or you're going to try and get a container, compromise a running container or get a container to run that you're in control of on that environment. I'm sure there are other other ways in, but those are kind of like the, the critical ones. And that's where a security team can start, can work with a, a dev team to look at, well, okay, these are the likely attack vectors. How do we mitigate against those and still keep you running as fast as you want to? So I think you have to secure your running containers because they're a clear attack vector. So you need to start right at the beginning, you know, the whole shift left movement. Can you make sure that as your developers are developing their code and their infrastructure is code that goes with it, can they have access to security tools to make sure they're not, they're not causing problems? Um, you know, are they using secure third-party libraries? When they, when that gets built by your build server, can we do, you know, can we check again what's going on with that? Can we look at what libraries are being used? Can we look at how um, containers are being configured to run? Can we get at the end result of that the, the most secure container that we can? When we deploy into, into Kubernetes, can we make sure we're using containers from a trusted source? A super common attack vector is I compromise a running container, then use permissions that container has to launch a malicious container that are doing something else. It's not. Um, now, there's a bunch of ways to stop that. One is, should I be able to launch other containers from within my container? Should I, should I be able to compromise that container? Should I have rules that prevent, that, that specify where I can pull containers from, what, what registries I can use on my Kubernetes environment? Absolutely, I, you know, I need, I can, I can affect that fairly easily. I can build security into my development process. I can build security into the build and deploy process. I can configure um, mission control rules to specify which containers can run. And I can actively monitor what's going on in my container environment while it's running and see what it does. Things like, you know, anomaly detection. I can make sure that, you know, a particular container image running, I've seen this container image run, you know, potentially hundreds of times for lots of hours. It's always done the same five things. It's touched the same five processes, touched the same five, five files. Well, you know, usually a compromise results in, a, in an attacked item on an attacked object doing something different. It doesn't do what it always did. It's doing something new because somebody else is now controlling it. So if I can spot when it's doing something different, that's a great, powerful tool. So I can use that anomaly detection. I can obviously, if you know, file my APIs, I can make sure that I'm looking at how everything's deployed to make sure that nothing's exposed. You know, like so many, so many attacks have been through like some kind of console being exposed to the internet when it, it shouldn't have been. So again, all those things are relatively easy to spot. And for a security team, they're often fairly obvious. I think the, the real coming together and where the, the crux of the problem is, is that the, the Kubernetes, Kubernetes environment, I always think is almost like you've created a universe with a set of natural laws. So I don't have to worry about when I drop an apple, how it falls to the floor, it just does. So Kubernetes provides me this environment where I run containers and I don't really have to worry about how, what happens inside there. I do my deployment. Um, you know, Kubernetes engine handles scheduling, placement of containers, restarting containers, communication between services. If I'm using service mesh, you know, it does all that stuff for me. It creates this, this universe. And that's great. So I can do things at huge scale, but I kind of have to control 
at scale using kind of using these these laws and i think security we're really good at finding problems and fixing them and, and mitigating them kind of at the end point and actually what we need to do with security is we need to kind of work out the same kind of scale and operational pro- processes that have led people to be able to run you know huge kubernetes environments but for security i think all the knowledge and the, the skills are actually generally there in a security team the tools to find things they have to be built in an at-scale way. Determining policy and attack vectors and that kind of real security thought process is a human-sized problem. Putting that into effect and control is not a human-sized problem. We ran a little dev day experience with a, a cloud partner the other day, a tiny test environment where people could go in and find and fix problems. There were I think it's over 1,500 objects in this tiny test environment. And that's a really small test environment. And actually, if you scale that up to any kind of enterprise environment, there are thousands and thousands of objects and hundreds of thousands of configuration settings. We can't expect people to to anyway manually find those. All we can do is set policy and rules and allow our, our underlying tools and platforms to find those problems and potentially fix them for us as well. So I think the the real the real kind of... Uh, the real kind of end point will be when security teams can do what they're best at, uh, which is, you know, really thinking about the security implications of a particular uh, setup, looking for attack vectors, keeping abreast of what's going on in, in, the, in the world. And that the implementation of all that knowledge, you know, is and the implementation of all that policy is done by a platform. And that leaves the developers able to use that platform too. And everyone keeps moving as fast as they can. I, I'm not convinced we're entirely there yet everywhere. Well, one of the things that we've noticed and when people are building on Kubernetes, it gets to a point where you are growing and growing. There's more groups inside the organization that want to use Kubernetes and see the advantages of it. And then there becomes issues such as cluster sprawl. How are some of these problems that you're talking about, these attack vectors affecting companies as they scale their operations? It seems like what you're saying is that they're... There, there needs scale and operations processes to, to secure at scale infrastructure environments. I guess in part of this, I'd like to kind of, you know, maybe use this as a way to step into the future. And what are, what are the tool architectures that are helping with these, these scale and operations processes? And how are they starting to be adopted? How are you seeing them being adopted? So that's, that's a great question. I mean, as a security vendor... I'm not sure I have the right to tell people that they should or shouldn't have a sprawl of Kubernetes clusters. You know, how they want to to build that out is 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 fine. It's it's not even you know, my my place to tell you whether you should have six, sixty or six thousand Kubernetes clusters. That's down to you and your operational processes. What I will say is we have to be able to build solutions that allow that security mindset and that security to scale because I, I'm I'm pretty sure that you're not gonna recruit a ton more people every time you scale out a cluster. And in fact, the the, the thing that has to happen is that security tool set has to be as you know, if you can't operationalize your security tool sets to scale as your cluster sprawls, then you shouldn't. So everything has to go along together. You can't leave security behind. You can't think, well, okay, we don't have a way of reliably scanning every piece of YAML that gets put out there that, that's used to create an infrastructure, uh, used to create a configuration. But uh, we'll get to that. That doesn't. That's not going to work because the more you sprawl, the the greater chance there is of something being 
being left out and you having a problem later on. So you have to be able to scale those tools alongside as you scale your cluster. So if you're building the operational processes that allow you to manage multiple clusters, clusters of clusters, however you're doing it, whatever tool sets you're using to, to make it operationally possible to scale the number of nodes and clusters that you have, then you've got to make sure that you've got those, that, that the security is part of that, that, you know, that it can't be an add-on. You can't expect the security team to come running along afterwards and retrofit security into that process because you're going to move, you're going to move faster than they can nearly all the time. So how do we do that? How do we make sure that, you know, if I create a Kubernetes cluster, that it has all that security in place? Well, it kind of depends on what, what kind of architecture you're using and what, on what tools you're using. And obviously, I, I work for a vendor, so I would say you should be using great stuff from Palo Alto. But it, to a certain extent, when you build a cluster and you kick off your cluster, if that cluster doesn't come up with, you know, for instance, if you build a cluster and it didn't come up with some of your other tool sets, if it didn't come up with, you know, half the services you need running, then you call it a failure. But if you build a cluster and it doesn't come up with whatever security tool, tools you've chosen to be in place, in place, then again, you've kind of failed. It has to be a key part of it. You have to make it so that your processes that scale your clusters, scale your security with it. And actually with the, with, with the kind of tool sets that, that everyone's building, you can do that. You can make sure that there's a, in, in our terms, we, we run a daemon set for privileged containers that protect the, the nodes and the containers that are running in Kubernetes. So that's fine. If, you, if that piece of YAML's in your kind of deployment that onboards, you know, Prisma Cloud components into your new cluster, then, then fine, we're, we're happy. We can see that. We can start monitoring and managing. And that's true of whatever you use. So you have to bake in the security to your cluster, sprawl or not sprawl. You have to make it so that the kind of things that people are doing are highly scalable. So if I have a, a tool set that's, that's, you know, hopefully any tool you're using for security is taking a really high fidelity threat intelligence feed, and therefore that's kind of updating the, the threats. But if I want to build new controls into there, that needs to be done, that needs to scale out. So I, you know, if I have a security team that's come up with a, a new thing they want to do, maybe we've realized we're not, we're not sufficiently restricting where containers can be pulled from, or we realize we don't have rules that stop you sharing host networks or mounting host environments or host file systems. And I want to have this out. That rule set needs to be easy to sort of propagate out across all of these clusters. We can't have a kind of a manual people in the way process where we have to go and manually update YAML and stuff like that. We have to be able to build the tool sets that allow that scale to happen. And then again, the only way to fix a lot of our security issues at the container level is at source. You know, there's there's good reasons for, for the whole shift left movement. But, you know, essentially, if you think about a modern development process, most of the things that come out of the end of that should be immutable. There's no going and running and patching, running stuff. That's not that's not a, a pattern that anyone wants to follow. So if you're not shifting your security left so that you can affect security early on, then you're kind of failing because you can't fix it at the end. You can go back and tell the developers that there's a problem, but ideally you need to give them the tools to identify when there's a, when there's an issue where they're doing something that's automatically insecure. So again, if you leave security to the end of that development process, it's going to hamper your ability to scale. So I think, you know, look, short, short answer or after a long-winded answer is, I, I want you to be able to scale your clusters as much as you want. If you can operationalize, you know, cluster sprawl without it causing you problems because you've built automation and rule sets and it's, a, it's just a part of how you operate, I want you to build, be able to build the same security into that. I don't want to limit you to however many clusters because of a security problem. I want that to be a business or an operational decision that security can, can adapt to. I think a last question about shifting left is a 
good way to end this discussion because shifting left is still, I think, pretty new to a lot of people. And you can shift left and you can start scanning all your containers. Uh, you, I mean, there's, a, there's a lot you can do, but there seems to be a lot of work that still needs to be done in the, in the development of these tools. Uh, so uh, they do more than just detect what's there, but they actually help you act upon it. And I'm curious your thoughts on that. So those developer teams and those operations teams can be more proactive as they do shift left. Yeah, I mean... It's... <laughs> So the archetypal security kind of trope for a, for a developer is that at the end of the development process, the security team turn up with a spreadsheet with lots of red marks in it and checkboxes telling you that this is wrong and that's wrong. And that's, that's massively unhelpful most of the time. I think step one is to make those tools accessible to developers. So if you have a security, if you're building a security product out there that's able to look at infrastructure as code, look at insecure container default container configurations, make sure it runs in the in an IDE. So I want as a developer, I, I want to be able to kind of like, okay, here's here's my application code, which I might do some some static code analysis on. Here, here are the libraries I'm using, which again I want to be able to find it if they're secure. Here's my infrastructure, here's my YAML, here's my, you know, Terraform template on my, you know, CloudFormation template. If, have I made any mistakes in there? And I want to be able to know before I even commit, I want tools that I can use in my IDE to tell me that I've, I'm not going to do anything that's going to cause problems before I even, before it hits, you know, before I even commit it into whatever source code repository. And again, as you say, I want to know, ideally, I want to know not just that I've done it wrong, but I want to know how I should be doing it right. And there's a kind of a tool development process in there. But it's really important that that's, that's a collaborative discussion between you and the security team. We're not going to be able to force, or we shouldn't try and force security into people because they'll, they'll generally not enjoy it and not often use it. So again, that, the kind of the negotiation needs to happen. And you're right that it needs to be, um, it needs to be proactive both at the tool set level and at the human level as well. We need to have those discussions. You know, there's a classic, there's a setting we have integrates into a couple of the different build processes like Jenkins and GitLab and the various build build components out there. And you can basically say, we'll classify it, you know, a security thing as a, you know, low, medium and high and critical. And I get to choose whether which one of those those flags breaks the build. And that should completely not be a security alone discussion. It should be a security and development discussion. So, you know, every, every time I want to give feedback, but if it's a medium security, do I want to actually break this build or do, do I just want to flag it and, and inform the developer? There's a, and I, I'm not going to tell anyone what their process, their, their policy should be there because that's down to them. But to be able to have that discussion is really important. When I'm, you know, trying to use a library that's, that's known bad, I want to know, you know, that's out of date, has vulnerabilities. I want the tool to suggest to me what versions it should be using. When I have a container that's got a, a container layer that's got a, a vulnerable component in, I want to be able to reference the CVE so I can go look at it. I want that information back. I can't just have, you know, a big cross and fail. So I think there's work for all of all of the, you know, the vendors and the open source projects to do to make sure that there's sufficient additional information, proactive, you know, how to do things right that's that's in that there. And that's actually that's that's kind of a lot of work. That's where, you know, that, that f there's a lot of effort in terms of making sure that your threat feeds and your intelligence is high fidelity, that it's correct, 
that there's no false positives, that there's no false negatives in there. And so there is there is work for everyone to do. And that's kind of where, you know, the larger security vendors can proffer off, probably offer some value because there's economies of scale of maintaining a great threat feed. Well, Robert, thank you so much for your time and talking today. It's been enlightening about security in the Kubernetes environment and thinking more about shift left. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks very much for having me on the podcast. Prisma Cloud is a comprehensive cloud-native security platform with the industry's broadest security and compliance coverage for applications, data, and the entire cloud-native technology stack throughout the development lifecycle and across multi- and hybrid cloud environments. Listen to more episodes of the New Stack Makers at thenewstack.io slash podcast. Please rate and review us on iTunes, like us on YouTube, and follow us on SoundCloud. Thanks for listening and see you next time.